All right, well, I hope uh, you guys have survived the, the blizzard-like conditions we've endured here in North Georgia. And um, I do want to thank Drew for filling in last week. I have no idea what he talked about, but I assume it was something from the Bible. Um, we used to, when I was little, a friend of mine used to, a friend of mine and I used to have a little joke that we would have at growing up in Sunday school. And, you know, if our parents were to ask us, you know, what did you talk about in Sunday school? We always had our answer. Well, we talked about God and Jesus in the Bible. So I'm assuming that at least you talked about God, Jesus in the Bible or something in, in that order. So, but anyway, I do appreciate you filling in. And uh, it's good to be back with you guys. We're going to obviously continue in our study of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And we're still in Genesis chapter 2. And we're looking at this big subject of sort of the beginning of a biblical anthropology. Um, what does it mean to be man? What, what, what is the study of man? And what does the scriptures teach us about man? Uh, particularly when you look at man's beginnings in the book of Genesis. And so we're in chapter 2 because chapter 2, as we've talked about, is where... The text of Scripture zooms in on Creation Day 6 and gives us a lot more vivid detail of what, what took place in the creation of man and woman uh, and, and also gives us some indication uh, of God's purposes in creating man and woman. What, why are we here? In other words, it begins to answer some of those all-important um, questions of, of why does man exist? Why is man here and what's his purpose? Why did God create man? So it really begins to help us um, see from God's perspective and from the perspective of Scripture, God's grand design in his creative work, but more importantly, God's grand design in creating man and woman in his image. And so that's what we're looking at. And we've kind of broken this, this uh, study of a biblical anthropology down into a few key headings or a few key categories. And we're looking at man's creator, which we've talked about at length sometime in the weeks before. We've talked about man's formation. In fact, the last time we were together, I think we focused in quite a bit there. And then that led us into talking about man's environment. Uh, we, talk, we will be talking more today about man's vocation and man's accountability, man's dominion. And then finally, we'll close out this section talking about man's relationships and Hopefully, we'll get started with that next week, um, and I'm pretty excited about stepping into that because you'll really, we'll really start getting into this big subject of marriage and family and society and, and, and the beginnings of culture and that kind of thing that are really um, introduced to us in, in the creation of man and woman and putting them in, in relationship with one another. So let's look at our passage together. And again, I like to read the whole narrative just to kind of get it set in our minds. We're looking in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25, and I'll read it for us. Verse 4, it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold in that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. 
The name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So initially we talked about man's creator, just as a little bit of a review. We talked about how important it is for us if we're going to start with uh, an understanding of a biblical anthropology, which is the study of man, we should begin with man's beginning, and man's beginning begins with man's creator. That was sort of our catchy little phrase that, that I tried to put out before us to kind of get us started with looking at this and looking at man's creator. And, and we talked about how the, an anthropology that is absent of cr- the creator God uh, renders us really f- either foolish or completely irrational or ultimately destructive, self-destructive. We talked about some of those things that can, can develop in our thinking and our predispositions and our, our ways of looking at the world, our worldview, if we view ourselves separate from the creator. And there's all kinds of negative uh, impacts that can come from that. We looked at our creator, though, as one who is both transcendent and imminent, one who is above and separate from and distinct from his creation, but also imminent, involved with and, and participating in his creation. And we talked about those two sort of broad characteristics of man's creator as they're, as they're exhibited in the text, both Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and of course, throughout scripture, and uh, probably most vividly, obviously, in the incarnation of Christ. But we talked about how important it is for us to keep those two characteristics or qualities about God in, in good balance, and how there's a tendency uh, for, for people to either view God as only transcendent, in that he is separate, and he is distinct, and he is holy, and he's other, so he's basically impossible to relate to, or he is someone that is just far off and, and not really concerned with our, our affairs. So that might affect our, our praying. It might affect our hope, our faith. It might affect all kinds of things that would be part and parcel to a vibrant relationship with the living God, a vibrant relationship of man with his creator if we view him as merely transcendent. The opposite is true if we view man um, as imminent in that we view him as too much like us, or we, we ascribe to him qualities that are almost exclusively human in nature, oriented toward the creation, like a friend and a buddy and a pal and someone who really is about you know, helping me get through life and serving my needs as opposed to being the transcendent creator God worthy of all praise and worship. It's easy for us to get those two uh, out of balance. And, and as we do, it will affect our, how we pursue or try to cultivate a living relationship with God, with our creator. 
So we, we talked about those, those realities as important to help us uh, develop a, a relationship with God that is based on the truth of who he is as he's revealed himself in Scripture and not based upon a God of our own making, a God of our own design, a God of our own imagination. We talked about man's formation then, and we looked at how there's distinction between how God created man and how God created woman. Um, we talked about the, the method and the materials that God used in the creation of man and woman. We saw that man was formed. That was the, the terminology that's used there. Man was formed like it's the, it's the language of a master craftsman, like a potter forming clay. And man was formed out of the dust of the ground, whereas woman... And he was animated by the breath of life. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And he was given, he was, he was made a living creature as a result of that intimate creative act that God uh, demonstrated there in creating man. But that woman, the method and the materials were different. That woman was created by taking a part of man's side. The, the best translation is not necessarily rib, but a part of man's side that would likely have been constituted of flesh and bone. And, and man was, and woman was created as a as a part of man or from man, but the language there that is used is more like that of building, as opposed to a craftsman that would that might uh, create something out of out of out of some natural resource and take it and, and make it into something uh, beautiful. This idea of building is more like a, a construction uh, type um, type of uh, language, and and that's that's kind of the distinction in the way that that the man and woman are created. Um, we talked about the fact that, that there was some motives that are revealed here about why God did this. Why did he uh, do this in this way? And again, there's, there's a lot of, uh, of things that we could pull from Scripture, from other parts of Scripture, to, that would identify why God did what he did or why God created the way he created. But we just started looking at a few. Um, and, and how, how looking at God's motivation for, for the way he formed man and woman, it begins to lead us to these other areas of this biblical anthropology, uh, namely man's environment um, and, and so forth, man's vocation, and we'll look at those as we go forward today. Uh, the, the, one of the reasons why, why God uh, created man and woman the way, he, the way that he did, um, or the purpose in God's creation we see as it revealed in man's environment right there at the beginning where it's described as where there's no shrub of the field, no plant of the field, no shrub of the field had been made because God had not caused it to rain on the earth. And we talked about how that's a, a foreshadowing of what's to come in the fall and how God is going to curse the ground and it's going to produce thorns and thistles. Um, and man's going to have to cultivate the ground for his food and have to work the ground for his food in a, in a difficult way or a laborious way. Um, but how all of that really points to the fact that part of God's creative work in creating man has this idea or this purpose, this motive of redemption. That the fall is not a surprise to God and that God's plan from the beginning of time to the end of time is not a surprise. And so what we start to see as God's unfolding his creative work is this grand redemptive pur purpose being revealed to us as well. That in God's sovereign plan and purpose, it would also include sin and judgment and grace and salvation as part of it. Uh, we see God um, revealed to us as a craftsman. Uh, we see him revealed to us as a builder in the formation of man and woman. But then we also see when we start looking at man's environment a little more closely, we see God revealed as a gardener. He plants this garden. 
And you notice that the language, uh, as we see God's activity in chapter 2, is very intimate. It's very personal. Personal. It's very involved. God formed the man from the dust of the ground. To create Eve, he takes from the man a a part of Adam's side. And, and creates woman from that part of his side. And then we see in the, in the environment that he has uh, made for them that he plants this wonderful garden. So it's, it's, it's giving us this imagery of God as th- this is where we're starting to see God's eminence uh, on display, his, his involvement and his intimate involvement uh, in, in man's creation and man's environment, man's purpose. So let's look a bit, little bit, little bit more closely at man's environment. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week, how it was a lush environment. It was full of God's abundant provision, marked by unparalleled beauty. We can't even begin to fathom what it must have been like. The passage here in, in uh, Genesis chapter 2 says that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So before he was in the garden, he was in this environment where there was no... Uh, no um, shrub of the field, no plant of the field that would have been a result of the curse. That's the idea here. That's the same language that you find in Genesis chapter 3, that language of no shrub of the field, no plant of the field. So there was, there was plenty of vegetation, but it wasn't like this. So it's almost like there's this special place that's even more lush and more beautiful, a special place, a special environment that God puts man in. There's a deliberate act there that's taking place. It says that the Lord God planted a garden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So now you're already talking about uh, stepping into man's accountability. So all this stuff kind of runs together. It, it, it's, it weaves in and out from one another, these different categories that we've identified. But the point here is that this environment was beyond imagination, and if any of you have traveled to beautiful places, I mean, we've got lots of beauty in our area here. You go up, up into the mountains, you go hiking or whatever. There's just plenty of beauty all around us in God's creation. Some of you may have traveled to some of the more beautiful places in all the world. And you, and you go to these places and you begin to look around and you just stare and wonder at what God had made. Maybe it's, you know, the majestic mountains of the Rockies or maybe it's some great coastal region or something like that. And you just, you view, you know, a, a beautiful sunset over the water. Or you, you're on, on, a, on a high part of a mountain peak and you're seeing snow-capped mountains and all the jagged edges or some uh, beautiful crystal blue lake in some mountain valley. I mean, I, I've got... You know, pictures, we've been to places like that where you're just, you just can't even imagine uh, how much more beautiful it could possibly get. And yet, what we know is this, is this is a post-fall environment. This is a cursed earth environment that we're in. This is a post-flood environment that we're in. So we can't even really, I think, imagine the, the beauty and the lushness and the provision that was on display there. And it was a demonstration of God's abundance his abundant grace and provision for man in placing him in this garden. Even the term Eden is a, is a, is a reference to the, the idea of paradise. It's a, it's a, a, a place of beyond uh, imaginable beauty. And it's a demonstration of God's amazing provision for man and woman. So it's a lush environment. Uh, you also see how the, there's indication of how God is watering or providing water for all the vegetation that's there. So there's no rain, so there's this, there's this hydrologic cycle or pr- approach that's different than what we experience today. It's like there's this high water table 
um, and there's this massive river that's flowing through the garden, and, it's, and it springs out into four different rivers that are named here. And the idea here is it's identifying uh, places or locales that are real, that are, that are identifiable in the minds of the reader. Okay, so it's a reference to a real place, a real geographic location. Um, you have this reference to this river that flows out of Eden in verse 10 to 14. Uh, it divided, it becomes four rivers, and then it names these rivers. Uh, two of the rivers are, are known today, the Tigris and Euphrates. The other two rivers are not known today. Um, there's lots of speculation out there as to where this place is and where, where these rivers might have been and all that kind of thing. I think that it's kind of a fool's errand to do too much speculation there because, as we know, you get to Genesis chapter 6 through t- chapter 9 and you see what happens with the flood. I mean, what happens with the flood? We can't, again, in the same way that we can't really imagine the beauty of the Garden of Eden and what it must have been like, we also can't really fully imagine what it must have been like with the flood, with the entire geography of planet Earth being completely subsumed in water. Um, the, the water from the depths, the water from the heavens, I mean, just land-moving, continental shift. I mean, we can't even really imagine what, what, must, what, must have, what it must have been like um, in that environment. So to try to go into a post-flood topography and identify where the Garden of Eden probably was and all that is really not a, a fruitful exercise. And I also think that it kind of um, misses the point of the description here. Um, what we're seeing here is we're seeing uh, a, a massive place. This is, this is talking about really size and scope as much as real identifiable sort of landmark names that would have been in the minds. I mean, you have to think, too, that it's possible that Noah and his family, once they left from the ark, these might have been names of places that they identified with because they, left, they came off the ark and had to begin you know, repopulating, reconstituting the earth and probably naming things and kind of doing a second round of, of some of the original creative work that might have been taking place and establishing, you know, a, a society, um, beginnings of establishing a society and a culture. So we don't know exactly what happened to, to these, these other rivers, but these, these, these are identifying massive, some massive region in the east. So if you think about the Middle East region, this would have been likely a, a garden that's the size of like a country uh, in that region of the, of the world. So when we, when we think of the term garden, you know, we probably could be thinking a little too small. Uh, we might be thinking a little too, you know, you think about a garden, it's like, I've got a nice garden, you know, in my courtyard, it's beautiful. And it's like, this is massive. So it's, it's really trying to give us this idea of, of size and scope and, and real geographic location. That's, that's what we're really seeing here. Big place. Um, and obviously, like I said, it's a location that was destroyed by the flood. So there's really no need to go on an expedition looking for the Garden of Eden. It's, it's no longer there. Okay? Um, I'll cancel that trip. Yeah, go ahead and cancel that trip. I mean, I, mean, I hope you get your deposit back because I, you know, I might want to check that website, see if they're... Yeah. So, again, when you start thinking about this environment that man has been placed in, um, you're talking about huge size and scope with amazing, abundant, beautiful, perfect environment, perfect climate. Everything is just pristine, okay? Um, 
And, and we can kind of start ascertaining from that what was God's motive in this. Uh, well, for sure, I think it was a motive that God intended for man to be able to enjoy God's provision. I mean, I don't think that, that God would go to lengths that he went to to plant this garden with such abundant provision. I mean, every tree that with fruit that is pleasant to the, I mean, just this emphasis on what is pleasant or pleasurable or desirable for man. So there was this intention on God's part, clearly, for man to enjoy God's provision and to really have a sense of wonder at his creative ability, the beauty of what he made. There's, there's this worship motivation here, this, this instilling in man a recognition of the power and creative work of his maker. But there's also something else here that, that is revealed in this section of the narrative that's, that describes uh, man's location, man's place, man's environment. We start to see an indication of man's vocation as well, because we see that man was put in the garden to do what? What was one of the main purposes that God put him there that it says? To work it and to keep it. So clearly, God, one of God's motives here was also for man to employ himself in the stewardship of keeping and tending this amazing place. This is the creative blessing of work. Now, I know that it's hard for us to see work that way in our current situation, our current post-fall condition. It's difficult for us to view work that way from an internal perspective. In other words, our attitude toward work is often not good. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, um, our, our approach to our work, our approach to our job is often tainted by our own sinfulness and the, and the, and the tendencies of our own hearts to, to be discontent and be dissatisfied. But the fact of the matter is, is that work is a blessing. It is a pre-fall part of creation, part of God's design blessing. It's clear in the text. It says the Lord God took the man in verse 15. He took him and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. This is a pre-fall blessing. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that we operate in a post-fall reality. So there is the toil of work that we have to contend with. But I do not believe that God would have us view work as toil exclusively. Now, why, why would I say that? Why would I say that God would not have us just view work as part of the curse and rec to recognize that, you know what, we have to work the ground and we have thorns and thistles because of man's sin. And I'm, I'm a sinner, and so part of work and part of my need to engage myself in labor is a result of my own sinfulness. I mean, and I have to accept that. Why would I say that that's not, that's not the only purpose of work, but that there's still the blessing purpose, there's still the pre-fall purpose that God would, would have us be mindful of? Mark. Yeah, so, I mean, it's not, it's not as though the fall and the curse that came completely obliterated God's purpose in his original creation. I mean... 
do we still, is there still something to be said for God being created in, in his, uh, for a man being created in the image of God? Or is that just completely obliterated? I mean, if that would be the case, then we certainly don't have any need to treat other people with any real dignity, right? I mean, if man's not really creating God's image anymore. So there are elements of God's creative work and design and purpose. They're not obliterated just because there's a fall and there's a curse. But there's also another, another reason why I think that, that we should not just have a post-fall toil and trouble and labor view of work. Why, why else, would, there, why else would, should we have the right, a, a balanced view of that? Think about redemption. Think about salvation. What is the point of you being saved? There's a reconciliation. There's a, there's a redemptive purpose, right? So part of the Christian's duty is to also redeem. Remember we talked about this even when we talked about um, the Sabbath day of rest, the, the seventh day in the creation narrative where God rested and how part of our purpose is to redeem that Sabbath rest. We are to work no, you know, not, we're not working for our salvation, but we're resting in the salvation of God, the redemptive purposes of God. Well, the same principle is true here, I think, of work. That the toil of work is a reality. It is part of the curse. In Genesis 3.17, it says that, that, um, that God was cursing Adam, and he says, you shall, um, uh, it says in pain, uh, let's see, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. I mean, it's pretty comprehensive. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. There'll be sweat, and there'll be pain. And there'll be thorns, and there'll be thistles. So basically what we have after the fall is we have an adversarial creation. The, 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 the ground itself is operating against us in our work. So a way to look at work before the fall, possibly, is to see it as work where you're not having to fight against the actual dirt that you're working in. The, the creation itself is battling against the work of man post-fall. That's what's happened here. Cursed is the ground because of you. So, but let's think of it from a Christian perspective, this whole idea of work. I mean, we can, we can uh, consult all sorts of research, all sorts of uh, journal articles from psychological journals, and on and on it goes. We could look at these things and we could see the correlation between uh, a man's um, physical and emotional and psychological well-being and his engagement in productive activity. I mean, that's, there's, there's research replete on that subject. So, and, and I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I'm, I could be a case study for that. When I have time off, if I become too sort of settled in my time offishness and I become very idle for a long period of time, I, I, I begin to sulk. I begin to feel physically sort of like I'm, have you ever been so tired from being off and not doing anything? You know that physical effect? It's weird, right? So we all know that that's the case. That's the effect, and that, you know, those are truths, and, and we all experience it that from that perspective. But I would want to put into our minds, into our thinking, something much more significant and much more profound as it relates to our view of work and how we approach work. How we approach work as a, a point of Christian duty 
a, a point of Christian testimony that is massively important from Scripture. Now, I want you to listen to these passages. The Christian duty of work is a practical necessity, and it's part of our faithful Christian witness. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-15. to Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. For you yourselves know you ought, to not, you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not burden, be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. There's the practical necessity. And that's what the apostles were giving to the, to the Christians, okay? If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Idleness is the opportunity for all sorts of mischief. All sorts of bad things come from idleness. So the, the, the issue here is that they're not busy, that they're becoming busy bodies, he says. He says, now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. That's serious. That's serious instruction about work from the Apostle Paul. Now listen to 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The point here, guys, is that work is a practical necessity, but it's also a Christian duty, and it's a part of our vibrant, vital Christian testimony to the world. That we are actively engaged in the blessing of work, that we are redeeming work. Listen to this little article by Bob Thune. He's a a pastor who wrote this article called Work, Cursed, and Redeemed. He says, work is what we were created for. It is part of God's good design. But when sin entered the picture, work was cursed. Because of the fall, work is hard. Work involves sweat and toil, thorns and thistles. Or if you prefer, work involves stress and overtime and belligerent bosses and mundane meetings. There's your thorns and thistles in the modern day. Not everything in the world of work is as it should be. Work has been cursed. But work is still good. It's important that we see both the goodness of work in God's original creation and the struggle of work under the fall. If we only see the good, we'll be frustrated when things don't go as they should. If we only see the bad, we'll have a hard time doing our work to the glory of God. Work is not all good, and it's not all bad. It's part of God's good creation, which has been tainted by the fall. And God is at work to redeem work. Romans 8, 20 to 21 says, The creation was subjected to frustration in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Through us, God is after the renewal of creation. Grace doesn't just change our eternal destiny. It changes our whole worldview, our entire basis for living, the grid through which we see the world. 
Redemption affects every part of us, and through us, God's redemption is extended into the world around us. So, redemption in Christ must transform our view of work. No longer is work a necessary evil. It is now a calling. Work now has great spiritual significance because it is a chance for God to be glorified. Remember 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. A similar command is given in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in work or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. When you show up at your job, you're there for the glory of God. God wants to be honored in what you do and in how you do it. What are some ways that God can be glorified in our work? Consider these biblical ideas, and he gives some bullet points. I just want to read them off to you really quickly. God is glorified when we put our whole selves into our work with a view toward pleasing God, not men. He bases that on Colossians 3, 23 to 24. Secondly, God is glorified when we are honest, even when it hurts us or prevents us from getting ahead. Psalm 15, Genesis 39. God is glorified when we honor our superiors and submit to their authority. 1 Timothy 6.1 and Romans 13.7. God is glorified when we treat our work associates with kindness and respect. Luke 6.31, Romans 12.18. God is glorified when we expose fraud or dishonesty or unethical behavior. Ephesians 5.11-13. God is glorified when we approach our work prayerfully. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. God is glorified when we avoid complaining or grumbling even in less than ideal work situations. Philippians 2, 14 to 15. I'm sure you guys wish I wouldn't have read that. Right? I mean, think about it. I mean, I'm sure, well, I'm, I, I should take that back. I know that this doesn't apply to you guys, but can you imagine all the adults in the other classes, how they probably grumble and complain at work? God is glorified uh, when we make work and money Excuse me, God is glorified when we refuse to make work and money our idols. Matthew 6, 24 and Ecclesiastes 5, 10 to 12. God is glorified when we plan diligently for the future. Proverbs 21, 5. God is glorified when we live simply and give generously. Proverbs 22, 9, 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. God is glorified when we trust him to provide today what we need for today. Matthew 6, 11. And God is glorified when we rest from work. Deuteronomy 5, 13 to 15, and Psalm 46, 10. And he closes by saying, in all these ways and many more, we can do our work to the glory of God. Point here is that man was made for work. That God made man for work. Work is not just a part of the curse. The toil of work, the the earth fighting against our work is part of the curse and part of the post-fall environment that we live in. But God's creative purpose for man is to work. And now, post-fall, it is incumbent upon us as those who profess faith in Christ and who have been called as reconcilers of people to God through the testimony of of Christ's salvation in us to work to the glory of God in all these ways. Now, I, I don't know about you, but me reading through this, it reinvigorates me in my purpose for work. That work is one way that I serve my God and I I evangelize the lost, in a sense. And I give testimony to God's goodness and grace. Well, when you think about man's work, you also can recognize that God intended for man to be accountable. That that God did not just plant this garden with all this lush provision 
and intend him to be put in this garden and to be sort of on an, an eternal vacation. Otherwise, he wouldn't have introduced the responsibility, the accountability for working and keeping it, which is the next point of our little outline here, man's accountability. Now, of course, the apex verse here that points to man as an accountable being is not the reference to work in the garden. It is chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, which says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, that's, that's accountability. Right? I mean, that's, that's putting a fine point on this idea of man being accountable. But we would even be able to say that man is accountable when we even look at man in relationship. We find accountability in the context of man being a relational being, man being put into relationship. So, it, I, like I said, these things start to run in and out of one another. They start to weave together. But man is accountable, and he's ultimately accountable clearly to his maker, to his God. And the way that God sort of illustrated this in the, in the most vivid way is by putting these trees in the garden and giving them this one command. This one command regarding this one tree, the fruit of this one tree. So I have a question for you guys. I have a thought exercise for you. Why did God forbid eating from the fruit of one tree? Because, I mean, if you think about it, could not God have just... Avoided that altogether? I mean, think about, think about a child. Think about putting a child in a room full of all of their favorite toys. And, and think about having one that's probably the best-looking toy in the whole place and saying, just don't, just don't play with that one. That seems a little bit manipulative, a little bit sort of like, any, any ideas, any thoughts? So, so I think um, what is establishing his sovereignty is command. Okay. That you can give them a command and they have to be accountable to it. Certainly has to be part of it, right? I mean, again, as we talked about before, this is, this is the revelation of God. This is God revealing himself and his purposes and his power and his characteristics and his attributes. All this is about God revealing himself and his true nature to man through his word. And so certainly this would be an example of God establishing himself as sovereign. I have the right to command, and this is what I command. That's certainly, certainly one part of it. Any, any other ideas on why, what, what God might have been motivated by? What, what was he doing when he did this? And again, I'm, I'm not asking you to speculate around, you know, what was in God's mind when he did this. I'm asking you to draw from maybe other parts of Scripture, other things you know about God's word and his purposes that, that might give us some indication. Now that you don't have an idea of what obedience is, okay. you don't have disobedience, just like without, without punishment, you don't know what grace truly is when you know what punishment it is that you truly deserve. Yeah, so there's, there's an element here of, um, of uh, this, this, I think, is speaking to man, man's freedom 
under God's sovereign rule, right? I mean, man was created with the opportunity to obey and trust willingly, to choose faithfulness and trust in God's provision willingly, right? Um, let, me, let me give you some, some insight that I read from John Piper that I thought was, I think, a very profound way to look at it. And I'll just tell you the, the, the motive that I wrote down here, uh, and one of the motives that I think God had possibly for, for, for this, uh, this approach in the garden with this one tree. I think it was about God's provision and God's protection. Um, providing for man's fullest enjoyment of God and all that he has supplied to him and protecting him from the result or consequence of distrust and disobedience. Listen to this article by John Piper, and it, it's, it's just answering the question. I think it's probably more of a transcript of an audio Q&A or something, but it's the, the question is, why did God forbid one tree in Eden? And he says this, the function of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to make sure that the pleasures of all the other trees in the garden are supremely pleasures in God. The command went like this, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So what was God saying in prohibiting the eating of one tree out of a million trees? He was saying, I have given you life. I have given you a world full of pleasure, pleasures of taste and sight and sound and smell and feel and nourishment. Only one tree is forbidden to you. And the point of that prohibition is to, to preserve the pleasures of the world, because if you eat of that one, you will be saying to me, I'm smarter than you, I'm more authoritative than you, I'm wiser than you are, I think I can care for myself better than you can care for me, you are not a very good father, and so I'm going to reject you, so don't eat from the tree because you will be rejecting me and all my good gifts and all my wisdom and all my care. Instead, keep on submitting to my will, keep on affirming my wisdom, keep on being thankful for my generosity, keep on trusting me as father, and keep on eating these trees as a way of enjoying me. There are 10,000 trees, every imaginable fruit. Just go eat. Be thankful. I've given them to you and see them as expressions of my goodness and savor them that way. That's John Piper. That's not God. Just clarifying. He's, he's paraphrasing or elaborating on what he thinks God might have been doing. He says, and Satan comes along and he takes that arrangement. He says, hey, Eve, the meaning of that arrangement is God is selfish. God is stingy. So he took the prohibition of one suicidal tree and treated it as a prohibition of everything. So the issue of the tree is this. Will we keep looking to God as the giver and lover and treasure of this garden so that all of our eating is thanking and all of our savoring is savoring of God? Will we keep on experiencing every one of these tastes as a tasting of something like what God is and in the sense of tasting God? Will we keep on enjoying God and the enjoying of the trees? That is what the forbidden tree was there to test. I think a lot of people try to set up that as, a, as merely arbitrary. Will man obey or will he not obey? And they don't put it in the context of his fatherly care and all the goods that he has given. I don't think it is arbitrary like that. It was a warning. If you choose independence instead of God dependence, you will lose the pleasure of the garden and God with it. If you keep trusting me and enjoying me as your greatest delight and highest treasure, 
You will have this garden, and I will be the pleasure of all your pleasures. The forbidding one tree is a way of securing that the pleasures of all the other trees in the garden are supremely pleasures in God. So that's just another way to look at this, this arrangement here, that in some way, God was providing for man's richest enjoyment. God was protecting man from the devastating reality of complete autonomy from God, of complete declared independence from God. And really, when you go to Genesis chapter 3, and you start looking at that, that dialogue between the serpent and Eve, this becomes really, really clear in that, in that discussion. We look at that when we get to that point. But there is this idea that God is robbing you of something, is keeping something from you. That was kind of the thrust of the serpent's argument to Eve. He, he doesn't, he's, there's something that he has that he doesn't want you to have. So all this provision that he's given to you is really kind of a, a, a veil. It's kind of a, a, um, a shielding, a hiding away from you of what's, what's really the pleasure, what's really the secret. And then he tempts Eve into taking and disobeying God's single command. So we see here that man is certainly and clearly accountable. And this accountability becomes painfully obvious to us when we get to Genesis chapter 3, when we see what happens in man's failure and man's disobedience. Well, when we look at man's dominion, I, I have this as kind of a smaller point. We could talk at length about man's dominion and his stewardship of the earth, and there's a lot of different trails that we could follow. But the simple point, and really it's, this, is, this is more uh, explicit and more elaborated on in Genesis chapter 1, um, where, where man is commanded to take dominion and to rule over the earth. But you see indications of this also in Genesis chapter 2, where man is, uh, all the animals are brought to man. Obviously the context there is, is, is leading up to the creation of woman as a suitable helper to man. But the fact of the matter is, is that man is given this garden, he's given dominion over it, rulership over it, to work and to keep it, to steward the garden, but then also the animals are brought to him, and whatever he named them, that's what they were called. So you have this idea, this dominion idea, this rulership idea, and just drawing that out to contrast with what would be a secular point of anthropology, that really man is not, man is just a part of the earth, man is just a part of the animal kingdom, Man is not ruler over it. Man does not have any dominion mandate. So there's just a very distinct contrast there between a biblical anthropology and a secular anthropology as it relates to man's place in relationship to the rest of the earth and the rest of the created order. That man was given, deliberately given dominion as a steward of God's creation. Well, that's going to lead us to man's relationships that we'll start into next week. So let's close in prayer.